it just seems crazy. And actually, we were told that it is safer to have chemotherapy than actually a glass of wine from the second trimester onwards, which is an amazing thing to almost think about. But it is getting the head round and getting a proper MDT discussion. Hi, this is GP's Talk Cancer, brought to you by Gateway C. I'm Dr. Rebecca Leon, and joining me through this podcast is Dr. Sarah Taylor. We are both practicing GPs and GP leads for Gateway C. We're both passionate about diagnosing cancer early. And in this podcast, we want to share our clinical experiences with you so you can make better, faster and more confident cancer diagnosis in primary care. So there's some official stuff to make you aware of. We know this podcast might be of interest to anybody, but it is really aimed at primary care health professionals. And although all patient cases are based on real stories from our clinical practices GPs, they are fully anonymised with no identifiable patient data. Gateway C is funded by the NHS and is part of the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. So the official stuff out the way, the kettle's on. It's time to talk about today's podcast and we'll be talking about breast cancer. I'm here alongside Sarah and Ellen is working up north today. Ellen is a junior doctor who works with us at Gateway C. But we are joined by my friend and colleague Pete Walworth from the charity Mummy Star. Pete. I think you do a better job of actually telling us why you're here and a bit about yourself. Thank you. I will, of course. So I'm the founder and CEO of a charity called Mummy Star that's been going 10 years and we focus our support on families where they get a cancer diagnosis during pregnancy or any time up to 12 months postnatally. And we've been supporting families all over the UK and Ireland in that time to be able to support, be able to raise awareness of what the impact is of cancer and pregnancy and how it challenges families in what should otherwise be a really exciting and celebratory time. Well, thank you. And it's lovely to have you here. So, Sarah, how are you today? And have you had a nice weekend? Yes, very nice. Thank you. Yeah, my husband's on call, so we couldn't do very much. But yeah, it was, yeah, we did bits and pieces, walk the dog. Went for a run, which I won't mention to Pete, because I know he's injured, but, you know, yeah. it's all good. And Pete, how are you since I last saw you? What have you been up to? We're good, yeah. Just busy celebrating 10 years as a, as a charity, which is a, a massive milestone. And it's, yeah, it's been full of reflections and celebrations and, you know, obviously looking back on, you know, sad times as well. But it's, you know, looking at the positive difference we've been able to make and conversations just like this. Fantastic. We'll be talking about breast cancer today and I'm going to be throwing some stats at you coming straight from CRUK. One in seven UK females will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. But the good news is that 75% of women will survive breast cancer for 10 years or more following a diagnosis. Right back to the cases. And actually, I'm going to start with Pete to talk about a case that's very close to home. Sure, yeah. So my, I guess, introduction to cancer and pregnancy as a, as a topic came came from a, a personal experience um, 11 years ago. My uh, late wife, Maya, was um, 19 weeks pregnant with our second child and she started to develop a, a, a dull ache in her left breast at about 19 weeks. We proceeded to have a, a sonography appointment about a week later, had a scan, found out that we were going to have a little boy. And then in the midwifery appointment that followed that, it was just mentioned um, in passing that this, this ache had, you know, had surfaced over the last week or so. It wasn't particularly 
necessarily worrying her. She wasn't, you know, staying awake at night with concern or anxiety. But nonetheless, the midwife that we we disclosed this to said, you know, yes, it probably won't be anything serious, but we'll nonetheless we'll make the referral. We'll put a referral through to the breast clinic and. That was it. We, we we carried on with, you know, for the next couple of weeks. That appointment came and went, and sadly with it came a diagnosis that she had a, a six-centimetre tumour in her left breast. And as a as a family with a relatively limited experience of cancer, that's it's quite an eye-opening and scary traumatic time. But when it's framed with, you know, a continuation of a gro- you know, growing pregnancy and all the excitement is then it's just that it's that, that perfect storm that, you know, that nobody would really you know, sort of be able to imagine, you know, never mind be able to work out how to actually step through it. And from that point, we, you know, we had a, a really good team, very reassured, very quickly. MDT convened. We were involved in our MDT as a family. We actually sat there, you know, with all these different oncology and obstetric and midwifery, um, you know, professionals talking and making a plan for us as a family. We proceeded with chemotherapy, had four rounds of chemotherapy while Maya was pregnant, and then we had our baby by induction. He was born safe and well, and then she proceeded with treatment, um, you know, postnatally. The the impact as a family, trying to raise a, a little baby when somebody is so fatigued and, you know, and all the onset of chemotherapy side effects, especially when you've got that, that post-labor, you know, physical and, and you know, and, and psychological tiredness as well is a, a real challenge, you know, for any family. And it was from that that it, I guess it, it's, it spurned the, the idea of why wasn't there a tailored support out there for families in our situation? Or what if, more to the point, what if families weren't as fortunate as us? What if they didn't have the, the nature of support networks, friends, family close by that would have softened the blow and you could have planned you know, around your, the, the rigors of treatment and then subsequent surgeries? Um, and from that, I guess that seed was kind of planted, but you know, ultimately it didn't really tur- turn into Mummy Star until about nine months later. What sadly happened for us, despite the the initial cancer, you know, responding really well to treatment, the the cancer had actually very silently spread, with with no um, you know outward signs to the meningeal lining of her brain. And about eight weeks after um, Merlin's birth, she presented with um, quite severe dehydration. She starts to lose her balance, was losing her sight in one of her eyes. Um, hospital admission, um, and then a subsequent lumbar puncture revealed that the 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 nature of the spread and how rapid it was. Um, and she sadly then um, died at 10 weeks postnatally as a result of that cancer. And you mentioned that it was the midwife who actually was instrumental in, in picking up the, the lump in the first place. This was something, so you actually never visited a GP. It was a, di- nope. a, a different line of diagnosing and, and subsequently um, everything that went with that. Yeah, for, for us, when, when that symptom arose, you know, for her and she started you know, to feel it and, and, and you know, mention it to me, the next, the next juncture in our health journey, if you like, was that we just happened to have this appointment coming up anyway. So mm-hmm. it seemed like the natural course of action. So, well, why make another appointment when we've got that one next week? Um, and it was just mentioned very casually. We didn't go into that appointment fraught with you know concern or worry it was just you know what we're going to see the midwife let's mention it to them and then they said right do you know what I'll just make the referral you're here anyway there's you know there's no point in delaying any further and granted that could have caused you know some you know temporary anxiety in somebody to think oh well why are you referring me what you know you must be worried about something but for us it was better that than to go away and think should we have said something should we have not said something and ultimately it led to what was a very rapid diagnosis and and that's what you'd, you'd hope 
any other family would you know would be able to receive in that kind of situation did maya notice a lump herself she yeah she was she first noticed it when she was sleeping and she just said you know it just there's a soreness and i th- and i think because we'd breastfed our, our our daughter for you know for well over a year the natural position for us as a couple was it'll be something to do with with milk production it'll be yeah. a, possibly a blocked milk duct a bit of you know massage or you know warm pads on the breast tissue might you know might help ease it out um we didn't you know google symptoms we didn't look it up because it just wasn't a concern for her and because we didn't have a long wait to another medical appointment of any di- of any discipline um it just felt easier to just say well we'll just mention it there but it wasn't keeping her awake it wasn't a it wasn't a physical lump that she could feel for example it was just this dull ache is how she always described it um i mean sarah we we talk about an ache a pain a discomfort um which we see a lot in general practice what do you think about breast pain and 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 how is the best way to manage this um particularly hearing about pete's story and and things like that I think breast pain, breast pain is very common, isn't it? I think that's the first thing. And I think that there's, uh, you know, we've just done quite a lot of talking and research about it. I've just spoken to one of the consultants and we've been designing a local breast pain pathway. It, it is very common. There's lots of causes for it. You know, a lot of women who have pain, actually, it's cyclical, which is related to hormones in their periods. Um, I think a lot of people have pain that is actually chest wall pain rather than actual breast pain. I think it's really important to have like we always say we say this every week don't we it's important to have a clear history and it's really really important to examine a patient because obviously if somebody has a breast pain that's related to a lump or any other changes in the breast any physical changes in the breast then that has to be taken really seriously the evidence is that breast pain alone is not an, a, a symptom of breast cancer, but in association with a lump um, or with other breast changes, and it has to be taken seriously. And I think the key thing at the moment, well, not at the moment, they just generally is to make sure you assess the patient thoroughly. And I think, you know, it's part of it. We'll, talk, we'll come on to this again in a minute, I'm sure. But part of that assessment, I think, for breast cancer also, particularly in younger women, has to be a really clear family history, because if you've got a positive family history and you've got symptoms, then you become, you become more concerned. Yeah. And, and I think it's examine, examine, examine. And off air, Pete, you, you said something that will, will definitely stick with Sarah and I about symptoms not being in isolation yeah i think from from the i think what we've seen with you know with the charity over the last 10 years we've supported nearly 1600 people in that in that time so we've seen how people have presented and how they've described their initial symptoms and what the emerging theme has been is that when people are presenting that the symptom is seen in isolation of whatever stage of pregnancy they are or even whatever stage they are postnatally because there's so much body change you know postnatally as well and that that sometimes gets missed when people are are presenting with symptoms is that you know if we if we did have you know two or three women sat in front of us and one of them was pregnant and, and the other two weren't and they all presented with the same symptom there is the possibility that the person who is pregnant may not necessarily have their symptoms elevated in terms of the concern um, and it's and the only way around that is to just almost put aside the, the fact that they're pregnant or post and say right how do, how do we see that symptom in independence how concerning is it does it match the red flags when we're going through that safety netting process and then step forward from there in terms of referral and next stages because with covid and with us now doing more remote consultation particularly telephones it, we can imagine getting a phone call from um, 
a pregnant woman saying that she's got breast changes. And as Sarah and I talked about last week about we don't want to overly reassure. In some ways, patients almost just ring up and say, it's nothing, doctor, is it? So, again, back to the point that we that actually, I think, with any breast changes, we should be inviting the patient in for a face-to-face and, a, um, and an examination. But keeping the pregnancy and the symptoms separate yeah absolutely and i think for that you know for that patient if that initial call is a you know a, a phone call assessment or even a video call it's about making sure that not don't be afraid to elevate your symptoms if it's a concern to you it will be a concern to the health professional that's seeing you as opposed to playing down your symptoms or thinking that you're you're taking somebody's time up we you know there's this constant reiteration that the nhs is open and if you're you know if it if it doesn't feel or function right go and get it checked go and make an appointment don't be afraid to make the phone call because it's better for your own reassurance to have an intervention either to diagnose that it isn't something you're worried about and been able to go through the different stages of tests to be able to ascertain what is causing the problem or in the worst case scenario if it does turn out to be a cancerous um in you know instance then at least earlier intervention that net of options and treatment options and surgeries remain you know is is much wider from the from the starting point i always make a point of if i see somebody who comes in with a lump that for a variety of reasons i'm not concerned about of saying I'm really not concerned about this, but I absolutely think that you did the right thing in coming in to see me about it because it's my job to know all of the things to Mm. be concerned or not concerned. Um, And if you get something like this and you're concerned in the future, so sometimes you do see people with lumps that I'm really or symptoms that I'm really not concerned about. And I and just to, to add to them, because I don't want them to think, oh, she wasn't worried last time, when they've got something different the next time, to think, oh, she wasn't worried about that, or she made me feel like I was wasting her time. I want them to know that actually... I'm perfectly happy to assess because that's my job. And if they've got another concern in the future, they should come back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what also matters with that is is ensuring that the, the body vigilance messages that we're sharing with people, yeah. that they have to remain during pregnancy and postnatally. I think there is, there is this... I guess a, an approach that you know when the, when the the body goes through so much change during pregnancy and what we're advised is going to happen and what you expect yourself either from previous pregnancies or from friends or families you know notions of what they have experienced themselves is oh you know I'm going to have so much change how would I tell the difference between a concerning symptom versus something that's normal anyway and it's just reiterating that message that keep checking yourself keep doing the you know whether it's a monthly breast check you've got a reminder on your phone or any other you know issues that come up in and around pregnancy um it's making sure that your just body vigilance remains high just as it would outside of pregnancy I think we were talking weren't we about the um common cancers in pregnancy being just the common cancers in people of that age because uh, the other thing that's springing to mind is the idea that women a lot of women have rectal bleeding don't they and it's always hemorrhoids you've got hemorrhoids yeah but actually again that, i don't know whether you see many women we with do we, it's the, the, the common things that we hear are around um breast complaints abdominal discomfort gynecological issues whether it's discharge but where it's you know whether it's not clearly bleeding but other types of discharge that could be early signs of other you know utis infections thrush um rectal bleeding sign of hemorrhoids early signs of you know different types of bowel cancer breathlessness we've seen lymphomas lung cancers diagnosed but but the narrative that surrounds it is you, this is to be expected mm-hmm. in pregnancy and it's just that consideration of yes it probably will it could happen and it is something to look out for but if it's concerning you go and get it checked and don't ignore symptoms and I think even with all the awareness we've had over the last 12 months especially just because you've used the example around rectal bleeding bowel cancer check your poo all of those symptoms 
there's still that element of taboo around it and we've got to keep continuing those conversations mm. people say get it checked because pete with women being older now now that they're conceiving older women are having babies later do you think that's going to also increase the chances of cancers being seen in pregnancy and generally cancers i think because we've got these birth trends and they're not showing any change in you know in families leave it until later into the 30s early 40s there's going to be that overlap into higher risk categories around around age and it's it's important to to clarify that there's not causation between breast cancer and pregnancy but people are just going to overlap and you're going to have these coincidental diagnoses so you know when, when we talk about this subject yes we are probably only more likely to see cases over the next you know 10 to 15 years while those birth trends stay but that's not to say that women who are feeling those symptoms at younger age groups in their 20s 30s you know equally you know are going to we're going to see diagnosis as well and i think that's where some of the issue lies is you don't expect to be diagnosed with breast cancer at 22 24 27 and then all the other issues that come with it yeah and in terms of treatment so i i can imagine you know when, when i started as a gp if you'd seen diagnose somebody in, with cancer in pregnancy, the treatments would have been very difficult for somebody to tolerate and not possible. And I think that would have made me think, oh gosh, what we you know, what, what should I do now? How has that changed? And what's the position in terms of treating? When from from all the, the senior oncologists that treat and have treated people, and the and the the research that exists from the Institute of Cancer and Fertility and Pregnancy in Belgium, the research shows that there isn't any adverse impact on the development of baby if chemotherapy is given in the second trimester onwards. But it's clear to state that in in the first trimester it's far more complex and it's not routinely given because of you know the, the um, period of you know fastest fetal growth. But I think the the issue isn't necessarily whether you can or can't, it's how people psychologically get their head around the notion that you would have, you would combine chemotherapy, something that we know has side effects as well as, you know, as well as ability to, to treat or cure with the growth of a baby and that special precious time when people hold pregnancy so sacred that the idea of putting the two things together for health, for medical professionals as well as members of the public, it's just, if they haven't come across it, it's actually quite a difficult thing for people to get their heads around that it's possible. And once you do look at the options, like our experience, we were instantly given re reassurance because our team, purely by chance, had, had actually treated two other women in, in previous years with you know chemotherapy and pregnancy. They knew the safe parameters you could do so, but the you know the the unseen traumas that I think that hides is you know for women who are you know who were pregnant and being treated is there is that impact on breastfeeding and that is a fundamental core part of pregnancy for so many people and it's some people get bothered by the cancer diagnosis but then you lose something like breastfeeding from maternity experience and it's actually really devastating. I, I mean Sarah for us we've been in this cancer world for a while and I had the pleasure of speaking to Pete probably about 18 months ago and we did a, a cancer conversation as part of Gateway C and one of the things that I really learned about was about that chemotherapy can be given during pregnancy and you've put it eloquently <laughs> that a baby's growing and then you're actually giving a toxic substance yeah. you, you said it better than me but you know what i'm saying and that i think to any gps listening it, it just seems crazy and actually we were told that it is safer to have chemotherapy than actually a glass of wine from the second trimester onwards which is an amazing thing to almost think about but it is getting the head around and getting a a proper MDT discussion and I, th I think 
the other thing that you mentioned earlier is actually you being involved in the MDT. I think it's really special and really important that that can happen. Yeah, it's not something that I think many patients are aware of and, and quite often in cases like this because it is so specialised and you have you know disciplines of obstetrics and oncology that should never otherwise have any reason to discuss things with each other suddenly have to come together. And because they are nine times out of ten, it'll be an MDT just for that patient. Um, it is possible to ask that family whether they would like to be involved. It's not to say they all will be. Some some families over the years that we've supported, they don't want anything to do with the MDT, they, but they want to just be informed what's happening because it's too traumatic actually hearing it being spoken about in real time. For us, we found it quite a reassuring process. We found very involved, even if we didn't necessarily understand all the medical jargon. But the point was we were given the opportunity to be, you know, to be involved in it. And, you know, when you when you have a body of emerging specialists i suppose who've who've you know treated people like oncologist richard simcock who's been part of the cancer conversation that we previously recorded there is that reassurance that you know people are looking at this as a subject and wanting to know more about it to reassure others out there um you know richard richard to quote him from a conference a few years ago that he did for us said you know we're paranoid beyond rationality to medicate people during pregnancy so when you add something as extreme as chemotherapy into that same breath you can see why people have this rabbit in the headlights response to how on earth is that possible but yet the facts are there that it is. Yeah, I can think of it too. If I prescribe anything for anybody. Antiomatics, uh, antibiotics. Yeah, the computer springs up all yeah. of these things yeah. saying medium severity warning, high severity warning, yeah, yeah. low severity warning. And and you, exactly, yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, can I just talk to you a little bit about family history, Sarah? Because breast cancer in particular, there, there is a link with certain family histories, certain genes. You talked about a patient that you saw um, in her 80s concerned about oh, her she was granddaughter. concerned about a granddaughter yeah. having a family. I, th- I think breast cancer is difficult, isn't it? Because the it's so common. Yeah. So a lot of people will have somebody in the family who's got a, who's had breast cancer. So age is age really age is really important. important I, yes. So I mean, my if you've got somebody who's had breast cancer young, um, then I think that's important. Then obviously it is numbers of people, age of diagnosis and whether they're on the same side of the family or not. And male breast cancer is a an important thing to record as well because that is does have a high genetic link and so and I think it's not necessarily something unless you ask specifically you know so when you're talking about age Sarah what you're talking we're talking about basically about premenopausal women so kind of 50 and below yeah really yeah Yeah, I I tend to say 20s 30s and early 40s but you know just as a rough guide and I think but I think it's important but I, I don't know and I don't know whether Alan can check with that whether the male breast cancer risk is I think that's at any age Okay. I think that adds in okay, at any so we'll, age. We'll, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes at the end. Yeah, we'll, and we'll learn. <laughs> we'll all learn. Um, but, but BRCA is also a, a big thing that we see in the, the Angelina Jolie effect when she was uh, found to be BRCA positive and actually it was, we saw a surge of people asking for genetics tests and things because she made it very public. Um, I'm putting you on the spot here, Sarah. Pete, you might jump in here as well. I mean, the BRCA genes, there's, there's a BRCA1, BRCA2. It, it's, that's again, we ask about family history. Well, we need to remember about the family history yeah. of that it's not just breast cancer for yeah. BRCA, don't we? We need to, we, we might talk about yeah. this in another podcast, but obviously it's related to prostate cancer and ovarian cancer. So I think we need, it's one of the things, I think, you know, we have these key 
messages that we that I have. So my key one from today is definitely going to be Pete's thing about making sure that you look at the symptoms in uh, in isolation from the pregnancy because I think that is really really important. Um, but yeah, I think that I think recording a family history is needs to be on everybody's PDP to get better at it. Yeah. So uh, PDP is what we have to do every year as part of our appraisal. We have to um, kind of come up with three or four. It's quite a good one, I think, actually. I had not thought about it, but it's going to be on mine next year. There we go. Record family history more. Record family history, pedigree diagrams, the whole lot. Um, So it's really important to ask about family history and um, and certain groups also. I think we did discuss it when we did the ovarian cancer module. Certain groups, there'll be a high risk of um, BRCA positive. So that's something to always be aware of. Okay. Are we ready for our f- fun facts? Have we got some fun We've facts? We've got one fun fact, and it's not really fun. It's not it's really fun, is it? No. It's your elbow It's my one. elbow pain fact. Well, yeah, it is. That, the, that, that if you look at women with elbow pain, you're as likely to pick up a breast cancer as you are if you look at women with breast pain, assuming that you have made sure and examined that the woman with breast pain does not have other changes or symptoms. So in a nutshell... <laughs> a nutshell... So we're really talking kind of cyclical breast pain or breast pain with no other examination findings in isolation. If you compare that to all the elbow pains that we see in general practice. <laughs> um, elbow pains are really common one, really, is it? You know, but, but um, back pain, maybe. Yeah. So it, so breast pain in isolation, um, we should think about other measures, maybe safety net, maybe bring yeah. them back. Um, I often put a date in the diary for somebody to come back if if I'm just got that slight inkling that I want to see them again but it's not in isolation um, a reason for an urgent diagnosis okay I think just to pick up on that point I think from what we've been talking about with with symptoms and being checked and people visiting as well from a pregnancy context is that's what we'd love to see more of as well is if there is a reassurance that's given but there's just that niggling doubt that you want to have that person again is is place the appointment in your diary to get them back I think because sometimes we're people have been told to come back if it persists, you end up in such a wide realm of subjectivity, people then think, oh, well, do I bother them again? And it, it, we enter that that area of, mm. uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to take up somebody's time, but we, well, want, we want them to know that they're being watched and, and, you know, we're proactively wanting to seek the reassurance for yourselves as professionals as much as it, the person in, in question as well. Yeah, and I think that links into the one that, that probably Joe and Louise are now quoting to people too, that we always say that the patient who was told to come back if it got worse rather than to come back if it persists yeah um and actually nothing got worse but over the next year 18 months it didn't get better it didn't change but it didn't go i think you know that that wording and that safety netting and probably in pregnancy as things are changing anyway is even more important isn't it absolutely so we're going to do we're just going to quickly just talk about case two just because it's something very different and it does bring up some learning points that we want to talk about so sarah can you just just yeah so i think we're just talking about the issues of recurrence of breast cancer um particularly in older women um it's something we talked about on, on on the gateway c module that actually recurrence of breast cancer it is relatively common, um, not in everybody, um, and but obviously it is it is fairly common. But the biggest problem is that it can happen 
quite a long time after the initial diagnosis. So we've we've got patients who've been diagnosed five, ten years after the initial diagnosis. Obviously, breast cancer can spread to bones, to lungs, to the liver, and to to brain. Um, and obviously, there's local local recurrence, and all of those can have quite vague symptoms. So a lot of the patients who have bone recurrence will have vague pains particularly back pains but lots of people have vague pains and similarly you know the breathlessness the lung patients may have a little bit of cough or breathlessness mm. again they're often non-specific symptoms and I think that the the key when we've spoken to patients um, and you know Joe Taylor who does, does a lot of work with a uh, local charity on awareness for patients of recurrence of breast cancer is really keen that women are aware of their risk of recurrence so that they can articulate it when they come to see us but not all women will be and I think it's really key for us to make sure that we've got particularly good coding because you know what GP notes can be like if you've got something that's sunk 10 Absolutely. years ago do you, do you actually get we get a flash up to say History of neoplasm. You do for bone pain, but you don't for anything else. That's interesting. So, if so for the so if there is, as you say, dizziness or um, a breathlessness or something, I don't know, abdominal pain, which could be kind of liver capsular pain. None of that comes yeah, up. Yeah, I think it's just back pain. Actually, I don't think it's other bone pain. I don't think it covers. Come so like up, shoulder pain, which yeah. is an obvious one. That's really interesting. So it's almost the coding that can get deepened from 10 years ago and just from a terminology point of view Sarah this breast recurrence the word kind of secondary breast cancer are they all meaning the same thing yes yeah so yeah. just because yeah. I know that these words are yeah. used and people talk about uh, and obviously local recurrence can be slightly different uh, yeah. and a lot of women and some women will get local changes after they've had surgery I had a, I had a, um, a patient in recently who in the mid 80s who actually um, had it in 2017 and literally came with kind of fullness um, in the upper arm axilla area but she had lymphedema in that arm as well mm. and um, but I could feel that it was it felt different and she actually had a recurrence um, and it's unfortunately now uh, metastasized further but that's how she presented mm. with to say this this fullness which I think if it would have been a telephone remote consultation in the same area as her lymphedema and she was getting treatment for that it would have just been discounted so again examine 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 I think the other issue with this is that you like all of these things some of the investigations that we use aren't and it's just the way it is they're not particularly helpful so you can have liver metastases and have normal liver function tests you can have bone metastases and have normal plain film x-rays and you can have lung metastases and have normal chest x-ray 25 percent uh, of chest x-rays mm, are normal mm, which so i think that what we need what we should be able to do is if you've got a patient who has a history of breast cancer and has symptoms of concern is refer back to the initial treating team so that they can organize the most appropriate investigations so ultrasounds bone scans CT thorax, MR brains, because I don't think CT brain is a particularly good test for picking up brain metastases if they're quite small as well. So I think it's not something that it's like there's like lots of things we talk about. It's having that awareness, understanding the limitations 
of the investigations that we can access and then sending on to somebody who can... From a resources perspective as well, you mentioned Jo Taylor. She's produced some fantastic infographics around how you pick up the early signs and symptoms of recurrence. And I think that stemmed from conversations and concerns that when people are given the all clear and no evidence of disease, that they're not at the same time always given a raft of information about what to keep an eye out for. And because if it is given, it's given in the same conversation that somebody is perhaps really joyful or you know relieved at good news that they don't necessarily pick up the things to, to necessarily take forward and and that's a message that joe's been talking about for years she has hasn't to she? make that yeah. point and to have it heard so that that secondary breast cancer community are are, are listened to and, and it's you know it's, it's the chances are things being picked up earlier yeah and like lots of patient infographics and information leaflets yeah. actually joe's leaflets and They're infographics brilliant. are really really good for primary care professionals yeah. as well and it'd be a good one to have you know for any surgery to have yeah. copies of that not just for patients but for you know for any gp as well to look at it because it's so it, it's so easily digestible but yeah. it sticks with you but i think and again we'll put those in the show notes yeah. at the end but again it's as you say when somebody's been given almost the all clear the last thing they want to hear is it may come back and this is what you need to look out for and it's understanding the nature of the disease as you're saying both of you that unfortunately can stay latent it can just stay there and then actually it can rear its ugly head later on yeah it's it's not to say that there won't be situations where sadly like i explained earlier there isn't any outward sign that there is something else going on and then by the time it suddenly takes effect sadly it's you know it's far too advanced but i think what, what we're talking about and what joe makes the point of is where the symptoms are clearly there and they could be listened to and picked up on, but people either aren't aware of them themselves or health professionals maybe aren't that commonly in touch with people who are being diagnosed with secondary or living with, you know, ongoing impacts of of secondary cancer. Absolutely. Okay, well... I have really enjoyed this podcast. I have too, and I've got my takeaway message from today, which I always like. Always, and she'll be quoting that for forever. Forever, you'll all know. (laughs) And Pete, thank you so much. And and thank you for sharing your story, your experience, and for the fantastic work that you're doing ongoing. And I hope that we continue to work together and, um, and share the wonders of Mummy Star. Thank you. So, Sarah, thank you again. Thank you all for listening today. Uh, We've got a free breast cancer module that you can find on the Gateway C website. We've put all the references to the studies and guidelines that we mentioned and all the extra stuff that we've picked up. And also we'll make sure we'll put a link to Mummy Star website as well. These will all be on our show notes. Thank you for Ellen, um, who again, she's waving. She's remote but, and silent, but um, she is still providing us with wonderful information. And news just in from Ellen that what Sarah was saying earlier, that the male breast cancer is a risk at any age. So female breast cancer, you're worried in younger women, but male, it's at any age. Thank you very much. And I also want to thank our producers, Louise Harbord from Gateway C and Joe Newsome from Rethink Audio. Before we go, I wanted to just clear up and discuss the positive predictive value, which is something that we touch on in a few of the episodes. The positive predictive value was used to determine the threshold to encourage clinicians to refer on for a suspected cancer pathway or for urgent tests. And this was agreed at 3%. For more information, we have attached the link via the show notes 
and this is through the NICE guidelines. And I would encourage all listeners to have a look at this and understand this in more detail. You can also get this podcast direct to your feed if you press the follow button. And we'd love it if you share this podcast with your friends or colleagues. It really does help spread the word. Thank you and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.